0: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of A New Kind of Celebrity. I am your host Vainal and I am excited to bring you another inspiring and insightful conversation this week. At A New Kind of Celebrity, we define the word celebrity differently. We define it as someone worth celebrating. Our guests are people who are doing incredible work to make this world a better place. Join us as we celebrate these individuals and learn from their experiences, Leadership and wisdom. Our guest today is Vandita Murarka. Vandita Murarka is a young queer activist, a social entrepreneur, lawyer, and a rights based policy consultant. She is the founder and CEO of One Future Collective. Vandita has worked in the development sector for over eight years, and her work has won her several awards and has impacted 10 lakh lives. One Future Collective works on building compassionate youth social leadership in India. Their mission is to nurture radical kindness in people, communities and organisations through the work that they do on gender justice, feminist leadership and mental health. They hope to enable a world built on social justice led by communities of care. Join us in a conversation about identity and values and much more today.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, Vandita. Very excited about this, thank you for having me again.
0: Lovely, so maybe if you could start with just sharing a little bit about the work at One Future Collective. I know there's so much work you do both in gender, feminism, law, but also just like shifting mindsets through awareness and workshops and fellowships. So if you could just tell us a little bit more about the work you do at One Future Collective.
1: Um, thank you for the question. Um, it's been something that we've been reflecting on quite a bit, um, especially as the year shaped up with COVID this year and also how it shaped up last year um, with the protests that happened around the country. When we started in December 2017, we were just a bunch of like um, idealistic young people who wanted to do something. And we were extremely frustrated, And which is why I say that frustration and anger can be great starting points too. Um, Although they shouldn't remain your only motivation. And we started with a simple idea of what does it mean to develop young leadership that can imbibe these values of intersectionality, feminism, um, also place values of gender justice, mental health as important in their leadership journeys. And we started with very simple trainings, um, policy work, a little bit of advocacy, but I don't think as much of advocacy as we would have liked to. Over the past few years, what has happened is that everyone identified us as an advocacy-based organization. And we kept saying, oh, no, we're not an advocacy-based organization. We just do trainings. We just do knowledge and capacity building. Right. And then we realized um, last year, it was a big inflection point for us when the protests happened. We kept waiting, right? We kept waiting to see how we could contribute. And we kept saying that, but this is not under the mandate of our work. And then we realized it is because our vision is a world built on social justice and injustice anywhere is a threat to that, um, especially one that's happening right in our neighborhood. Yeah, And that just became an inflection point for how we saw ourselves. I don't think it got crystallized as much there though. Um, and then last year, um, December to this year, about March, we started a really intensive theory of change exercise. basically to understand that although we have a larger vision, how do we achieve this vision and what has changed for us in the past three years. And this is my long winded way of telling you where we're at in terms of our structure. So currently the work that One Future Collective does is based on three specific verticals, which is knowledge, advocacy, and community building. Mm-hmm. We find that building capacity and knowledge, um, through different, um, not going into that too much now, but just through different ways, through programs, learning products and services, resources, as well as advocacy, which is campaigns, but also community-based participatory research. Right. And something most importantly that we found missing, and you touched upon earlier too, is community building, that where do you have the space to be wrong and to be imperfect and to learn and to use that space to learn and then become advocates for the issues that you're learning about. So these three are sort of our key ways of how we do the work we do. Mm. It is curtailed by the themes that we work on. Mm -hmm. So we work on gender justice, feminist leadership, and mental health. And to us, these are very fundamental to what is needed to shift systems of oppression in the world. And which is why we also have three very specific programs that lie at the intersection of knowledge, advocacy, and communities, which is our Cure Rights Center, the Fem Justice Center, and the One Future Fellowship. And they respectively work on issues of feminist justice for survivors of gender-based violence um, for cure rights and for developing feminist youth leadership so this is what we're doing right now but we've realized in the past three years that the how of it will keep changing hmm. but our why the why we exist is very very um cogent and i think it's going to stay the same for a long time because that's our vision we want a world that is built on social justice not just on social service
0: yeah yeah no I I think I resonate with so many pieces obviously I think the the social justice piece but I think also what you shared right early on that some of this started from anger and frustration and sometimes that helps with action as long as it doesn't stay with you for very long I resonated a lot with that but uh, Vandita very curious like you know if you go on the website it says gender feminism so do you feel like it leads to only certain type of people coming for these workshops who might be almost self-selecting into it or are you able to reach out to people who you know that they don't know about these things and they should but because they're like okay this is not relevant to me they don't really proactively engage with it
1: that's actually a great question and that's something we had we especially struggled with in the beginning because in the beginning we were young and fairly new And the only people who show up for people like us um, who were interested in doing the same things that we were doing. But something we realized over time is that we apply a both push and pull mechanism towards this. Hmm. So our open programs are, of course, going to be taken up by people who are more interested. And this is something we've also seen in the makeup of the rooms that we're in. Um, Very few men attend um, unless we're doing programs that are beneficial in the corporate space. Then we have a lot of men attend. So if we're doing like a diversity equity training in terms of the, you know, in terms of the workplace, in terms of an education institute, then men turn up. The way to tackle this, we realized, is to go into spaces where people have to become a part of this. Mm-hmm. So we started partnering with schools, educational, like colleges, larger, like higher education institutions, Right. also workplaces and government institutions. So we have not, and we don't necessarily do these one-off trainings. We do more longer in-depth training programs, Mm -hmm. especially with an action component. And we've done this with schools, colleges, government officials in different parts of the country, both rural um, and urban areas, as well as with large um, private companies. And here what happens is we get a foot in the door. And by doing that, um, even if they bring us in for, say, something like anti-sexual harassment training work, we yeah. don't just do that. We build a foundation for that by getting people to understand concepts of gender, feminism, uh, intersectionality, structures of oppression. And we just we offer it as a packet. So people take that up. And it allows us to reach an audience that would otherwise and I won't even say that they're not interested. Um, I think exposure to right. issues is also sometimes a privilege. Yeah. And a lot of people may just not have had those conversations. I didn't, right? Like, I don't think I had these technical conversations around social justice till I was about 18 or 19. And I was in my undergrad. So we want to create a space where then we take these programs to people. So I think that has been a good balancing feature, which has also allowed us to balance out the demographics that we serve, especially in terms of gender, because we found that a big gap, uh, when it came to our open programs, like a 90 to 10, like I wouldn't even say 90 to 10, because we. Yeah, I think about that. Like we have 90% women, trans, non-binary persons attend. Yeah. Very few men attend.
0: Yeah, that that's really interesting. But I, I love how y'all have approached bringing them into the conversation. Because I think what you said made so much sense, right? That some of this is also just privilege of having that information. And I know I've also felt this many times that... It wasn't taught to us in school. We didn't have these conversations in in most formal spaces that existed. So a lot of it is picked up by who's in your extended social circle or social network that you end up mm. chancing upon. And then sometimes there's also that doubt on like, wait, what can I ask? What should I say? Unsure of like how to even have that conversation, not wanting to offend someone. Um, and going back to a little bit of my social media point earlier, I think. Sometimes when people like advocate for certain causes, at times they do come across in their passion, you know, a little bit intimidating to a person who is so ignorant that is like, okay, I didn't understand anything you said, but how do I even ask that without coming across as really stupid or offensive?
1: So I think that's again a great point because that's honestly something that I would say I'm guilty of doing often. Uh, both in terms of the passion part of it, but also I find in terms of the language part of it, hmm. we get so used to being in this space and using the same like you know language that signals to the other person that you know I understand this issue. I have spent years working on this issue. Right. That we automatically um, create this bubble around us, mm-hmm. and a lot of people are not able to understand what say basic concepts, what seems basic to me, yeah, could mean to them. And that of course translates in different ways right it comes across as passion as anger it sometimes even comes across as deep expertise of an issue and that's often what me or other people are signaling yeah but by doing that sort of signaling we're also excluding and especially for someone like me whose largest community base is young people hmm. so these are young um, and I'm like i'm 26 but um, it seems <laughs> like a decade now but I have like 16 year olds and 20 year olds um. You know who reach out for information and content and if i put it out in a way that is inaccessible it it just um takes away from my own cause because it turns away people who could be allies
0: Mm
1: -hmm. having said that i would say that passion isn't a bad thing um anger isn't a bad thing Um, they're okay and they all have their place and it's okay to have days when you just feel that but i think it's also important in a lot of parts to feel hope and to feel and to display, not just to feel, but to feel and display courage and hope and love and the possibility that these things can also exist because it does have a way of making you cynical. Um, I was watching this documentary called Knock Down the House. Hmm. And there's a line that AOC sees that when people believe a lot in something and when it doesn't happen,
0: yeah, it
1: makes you cynical in a way that I don't think people come out of. And if we don't do that work, in terms of our language and how we bring people in. Mm. We call them in instead of calling them out. We don't truly transform people or spaces.
0: That's really beautiful. The calling people out is something I've heard so often and I do myself Mm. as well. Uh, I've actually not heard as much of... I've even not heard the phrase calling people in. So I really, really love that. Um, I'm going to take the opportunity actually to ask you very basic questions that I feel like I still don't understand. I'd love to understand from you, you've said you've used the word intersectional a couple of times uh, as we've been speaking. Can you tell me more, what do you really mean when you, when you say the word intersectional?
1: I would just start by saying that no questions are basic. Um, but yes, um, the term intersectional is something that I got introduced to later on as well. Mm-hmm. And it's very simple in terms of internalizing its understanding. And that's what I would invite any listener to do first, hmm. to think about who you are, And to think about what are the social categories that form who you are. I'm a woman. That's one part of me. But I'm a cure woman. Hmm. Um, That is another layer to my identity. I'm an upper caste person that lends me a lot of privileges. And that's another layer, right? I'm a person of color in an international context. I'm a young girl. Uh, My body shape, my body size, my nationality. These are all layers. And the more um, unique you try to make it, the more you situate it in that person, It could be things like, um, I'm an English speaker. I have a postgraduate degree, and these are all aspects of social categorization. And all of these aspects of social categorization lend to me either privileges or disadvantages. And often what happens is that these layers of my social categorized identity will overlap with each other. They will intersect and they will create an overlapping set of disadvantages and discriminations. Or even privileges, right? Mm. Um, so, say, picking up from the examples I gave as an upper caste person from a Hindu family in India right now, I come with a certain set of privileges. And with, say, body size, as a queer person, as a young woman, I come with certain disadvantages. Now, these are things um, that will also remain privileges and disadvantages, depending on who I'm with and in what space I exist. If I'm in a room with someone who's white, like a white woman uh, from California. And she could be maybe lower income category than I am, right. but I may still have less privilege. It's going to be very contextual. Yeah. Having said that some aspects of our identity have a lot of historical oppression related to it, which allows for us to, you know, just state that yeah, these are categories in which in general I would face discrimination. Hmm. So intersectionality is just about understanding that each of us within us has different intersecting, overlapping social categorizations, which can lend to us discriminations or disadvantages. And the way it applies to an individual person, it can also apply to communities, to groups, to different sets of people. So you can think of this in terms of your classroom, the people you grew up with, your friend circle, um, all of this, and you will be able to notice what are intersecting characteristics in the group and how power situates itself in the group bases these social identities.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it sort of touches upon the uniqueness of each individual while also how we're all connected, right? Like you and I may have something in common, someone else may have something in common, yet what makes me... And all the, like you mentioned, the intersectionality of what all makes me might be so different from someone else. It's really fascinating.
1: Well, That's a beautiful point, actually, that you bring up because that also calls for the need for our movements to be aligned. Hmm. That if I'm fighting for gender rights, hmm. I have to be fighting for the rights of disabled persons. I have to be fighting for the rights of pure people. And I may not necessarily show up in all movements as much, Yeah, but then- responsibility on me to recognize that these movements and their realities and the possibilities of them becoming a reality are interconnected.
0: Yeah. How have you seen people actually do that successfully? Because you know, you go after like this one thing you're really passionate about and you're you're putting your energy into that or whatever, like whether it's a full time work someone is doing or whether it's even in their spare time, like supporting that cause. How does one actually engage in a way that you're able to widen that horizon and understand that there are also other things and, and how do you also find the energy, right? Where do you devote your energy? Where do you conserve it for yourself and say it's okay if I don't engage in this because I need that for myself. How do you make those decisions sometimes?
1: To be very honest, um, once you start developing an intersectional framework or lens for looking at the world, it becomes impossible to divide issues because issues like people are not divisible. Um, so I'll give you an example. I'll give you two examples from the work at One Future Collective. Hmm. So, One of our work streams is providing support to survivors of gender-based violence. So when a lawyer from my team or a social worker from my team works with a survivor, we cannot discount their religious background. we cannot discount their caste background and what that means for them. Uh, we cannot discount their income category. something as simple as um, their economic class will determine their options available, right? Can they really leave their family if it's yeah. a case of domestic violence, things like that. And to understand these intersecting issues becomes a part of my lawyer's work irrespective. Yeah. It just uh, if you come to it from an intersectional, Feminist trauma-informed approach. We understand that trauma exists at multiple levels and not just in that one incident of violence. And this is one example. Second is we provide mental health support, especially to a lot of young people. And to say that, you know, my therapist will understand that that young person has XYZ issues, probably because of just their age and the world we live in, but also that they might have issues because of what body shaming looks like in our society or what um, what sexuality they come from and things like that. And if my therapist does not understand that, the care they provide to that person is not going to be adequate because what might seem like a minor stressor to a therapist who's not aware of these things could be something major for that person. And while I give you these micro examples, they also exist in larger systems, right? Government schemes fail because, um, schools will not allow Dalit students to sit inside the class and study. Yeah. So you can build a school and you can give everyone books and you can enroll everybody. But because you haven't understood the intersectional nature of how society works there, um, the problems aren't getting solved. Yeah. Um, happens when an IES officer who is a Dalit person cooks in a village, the village refuses to eat that food. So things like that. Um, so not understanding this sets up projects teams, any level, like it could be micro or macro level to fail because we're not understanding the lived realities of that situation and we're not fully comprehending the things that could create potential barriers or potential solutions in that situation, which is not to say that one solution can solve everything. I wish Absolutely. But it <laughs> it but de- it can definitely be more mindful. If. Yeah. That will also help us identify who are the people to bring in. Um, to have conversations, to ideate, what do we need to truly solve for? Um, That becomes clearer when we understand that there's not just one issue that we're solving for. There will always be like multiple parallel issues that we solve for. Um, Having said that, um, going back to your second question, it is tiring. Um, But something that one of my mentors once told me is that feminist work is not supposed to be easy. Um, Social change and activism work is not supposed to be easy. (laughs) So if it's tiring you, take your breaks, don't burn out, have a community of people you can fall back on for, for support, for just joy and celebration, but it's all right. It retires you because it is emotionally draining, mentally exhaustive and also often physically exhaustive. And it's okay to acknowledge that, but it's also realistic to expect that not just from our work, but I think the work most people do is quite tiring.
0: Yeah. Fair. I love the examples you shared. I think it brought alive, especially at the systemic level as well as the individual level, right? So I think it was really interesting. When you've done these workshops with, like you said, right? Whether they're companies, they're corporates, even if the topic or the training is about something else, you'll bring in these elements. Could you share an example of how it may have impacted them or what changes they might have done after the workshop in in their context? How does knowing
1: about this make their work better. That's actually very interesting. Um, So one example popped to my mind straight up. We did this training in Bangalore where we worked with senior leaders of different for profits and not for profits together on what would a workplace where equity and social justice is a reality look like. And one of the questions that came up from one of the participants was that, you know, we hire uh, people of different religions and some recent hires have been Muslims. Um, And we have like Muslims across different categories in the organization and they never choose to sit with their teams. All Muslims at the same time go together for lunch or they will choose to always eat together. And it's not like anyone has told them to not sit with us. Now, it seems like a very simple question. And your first response would be, yeah, why are they doing it? Why are members of this community only talking to each other, not socializing even with their own teams? And these are some responses that came up from other participants, actually. About how when you're a minority community, one, you will always seek out each other because it's safe, because you've probably been bullied. And I'll just jump to a quick other example. I won't name the organization, but another organization um, I knew of and worked with for a while, they had a policy where they said, um, we're going to ban non-vegetarian food in the office because it smells. And they were linking it very closely to the food of certain religious and caste communities. And that's a problem, right? So even by doing these subtle things, we're creating a culture where now an employee of that organization is forever going to be wary about one, what food they carry into their office. And second, who they sit with to eat. And I'm just drawing on that example to share where um, where this drawing towards each other, this affinity can come from. And we will often see this in minority groups. A beautiful thing that happened in that room when we were having this discussion, is that multiple participants came together and thought of solutions. And this really looked so simple. They were like, if there are minority group that finds affinity with each other, because of historical trauma or historical injustice that has happened to them. And I don't just mean historical in terms of intergenerational, I mean, like bullying that might have happened as a child, if you took some diff into school, they asked, why have you never asked them to come sit with you to eat? And it's so simple. Everyone kept thinking, why do they go away and sit separately? But these were simple questions. Why don't you ask them to come sit with you? And then someone asked, why don't you go sit with them? And it's so simple. And even the person, like they were all very receptive. And they were like, yeah, that's something we haven't thought about. We all talked about how this is a problem. But we didn't think about this. And even then, of course, there are smaller logistical things as well. Like a lot of them would read Namaz. So are you willing to shift lunch hours in a way that everyone can eat together once they have prayed? Are you willing to make those adjustments? So once you're willing to do those things, um, other things become a lot about have you made that effort? And often on communities that have been in the majority, there is a responsibility to make that effort. And this is how when you start talking about intersectionality at the workplace and how when, you know, it's very easy for workplaces to say, oh, bring your full self to work. But my full self is my religion, my religious belief for the lack of it, my gender, my sexuality, my income. All of that is part of my full self. And this is a part of it. Um, Understanding that people will need support and going back to like, people will need to be made to feel included. You can't just expect them to feel included and come up to you. You have to take those measures. And yeah, this is one example. We've had several such small instances Um, In terms of infrastructural support, we've had colleagues talk to us very openly about what um, clothing could look like at the workplace and how they've had gender non-conforming individuals uh, who've dressed a certain way. And while people have been supportive of them to their face, because that's what the policy says, there's a lot of snickering that happens behind their back. And this training helps people understand how that can leave a lot of impact on that person. And that can inhibit the sort of relationships they form or the sort of support they receive in case something does happen. Like snickering can go on to become bullying, can go on to become harassment. And that really, really shifted how the people in the organization were treating that person. We've also had cases where people have voluntarily gone up to the other person and apologized. And this is not part of our training, right? We're not saying, you know, you must make amends. But just that reflection and understanding that You are made up of so many different pieces, as are other people. And to recognize that some pieces have historically not been treated the same. And that in your subtle ways, you're continuing to do that. And today you have the power to change that by simple words, simple actions can really shift things in people. I know people diss a lot of these trainings. They diss a lot of such intervention work. And I don't think this works alone. Something we found most effective is when leadership is committed to this. So leadership commitment, along with trainings, policy changes, infrastructure changes, can really transform an organization.
0: Wow, I think that, like on the face of it, it sounds so complicated that, okay, there's so much baggage of other things that have happened that has nothing to do maybe with the people at the workplace. And it just feels overwhelmingly complex. But then that question of like, okay, why don't you sit with them or have you asked them at the same time is so simple. It never occurred to me also that, Sometimes it's just asking very normal, simple questions. Like, how would you just treat anyone without adding these layers? That's essentially what the question was, right? Why don't you sit with them? Mm -hmm. Irrespective of everything else in the context.
1: Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you for that. So,
0: Vandita, you also spoke about, I think you were talking about the other issue of just like, acceptance of the non-binary when it goes to gender identity or gender fluidity or non-conforming in many places that i speak uh, with i mean many people who i speak to or even myself i think even though the acceptance might be there i think the understanding is unclear so i'd love if you mm-hmm. can share a little bit on how do gender identities get formed like when a young person is thinking about it how do they know uh,
1: who do they talk to yeah i'd just love to hear more about that Thank you for that question. Um, So, on the, just to start off, I would like to say that people tend to often conflate gender and sexuality. And while they're very interlinked, they're very distinct things. Um, Gender is about what gender I ascribe to as a person. And sexuality is how that gender, how I am sexually or romantically or otherwise attracted to someone else or other like categories of people. And my gender determines what society calls that sexual attraction. That's all. So they're two very great. distinct categories. Um, and I would also just give as a disclaimer that gender in and of itself is a social construct. So the way a young kid in India would identify a woman is probably, especially say in a semi urban or rural area is a woman with bangles, a sari, uh, with a certain type of hair. And I know this in itself is a stereotype, right. but right. in America, um, being a woman is not associated with wearing a sari yeah. from fifty yeah. years back to now i like i 'm having this conversation with you and i 'm wearing jeans and a t shirt and that 's traditionally what men are expected to wear right yeah. yeah, and these are what you would essentially call gender expressions, how we express our gender to help other people make sense of who we are more than anything else and you may like it, you may not like it, you may be forced to do it, but this is what has evolved over time. Gender is basically psychologically, the gender that you identify with. And over time, because society has developed in such a way, we have made the social constructs of man and woman, because it's easily understandable. It's easy to understand there's a man, woman, and then there's an other, because it makes your social classifications and navigating the world easy. But I always ask this question to young kids, you know, how many genders are there in the class? And they jump up and say, two ma'am, three. But no, there are as many genders in that class as there are people. At least that's possible. Because our gender identities can develop so uniquely. And I know people say this Mm. for sex. So biological sex and gender is different. Biological sex would be the sexual organs you're born with. And even in that, what they tend to do is they tend to say man, woman and intersex. And within intersex, they will classify all possible combinations that don't fit in as man and woman. And what you're again doing is you're defining the world through a heteronormative lens. That means you're defining the world through a lens where man, woman is the default and everything else needs to put into one category. Right. And that's what right. we've done with gender too. So biological sex is one thing and gender is another thing. Sometimes the biological sex you're born with can match with the gender identity that you ascribe to, and that's fine. And sometimes it won't. And then you can choose to transition. Um, your transition may not always be medical. You may choose to transition medically. Um, and when I say this, I also say that gender is not just a feeling that people feel, right? They will often also feel like a sense of disassociation with their body. Um, they will feel a disassociation with parts of their body that they might find missing, mm. which is why they may feel the need to have the body of the gender they ascribe to. So it's not just in those terms a feeling or a construct. It's a, very, right. it's a very personal need to feel their body as they identify themselves as. So in those cases, and in other cases as well, medical transitioning happens. But medical transitioning is expensive. Um, it can come with complications. And if you're someone who doesn't have someone to support or take care of you, that might be difficult. Lots of socio cultural, economic barriers there, because of which people may not be able to medically transition even if they want to. So. It's very incorrect to say, oh, you're not a woman because you haven't medically transitioned. You are a woman if you identify as a woman. Some people will socially transition, which is where the social construct aspect that I was explaining in the beginning comes in, that you start dressing and behaving with the mannerisms that the gender that you associate with is identified as publicly. Now, the concern with that is, as you mentioned, what about non-binary people? What about people who don't ascribe to man-woman? Um, In those cases, newer forms of expressions are emerging and they're beautiful. Um, Different genders express themselves beautifully. People can be gender fluid. People can uh, be agender, which means they don't identify with any gender as such. And their expressions will change. And maybe 100 years down the line, you will have social constructs, unfortunately, for what an agender person or a non-binary person must be like. That's just a way of society to constantly put things into brackets to make sense of it. Yeah, so just quickly to recap, um, there's biological sex, which is your sex organs, and they can also be of multiple combinations and permutations. Man-woman intersex is just a way to make it easier for people to understand. And gender is just the gender you identify with. It can be, there's a beautiful book, I think, called A Galaxy of Genders. So to say it's not even a spectrum, it can exist in <laughs> so many ways that we don't fully know of yet as well, and that's fine. And then there's gender expression, which is how you express who you are to the world. And over time, we will see it evolve more as hopefully there is more acceptance and people are able to share who they identify, what they identify as more easily with the world.
0: Wow. Yeah, I hope that made sense. Of course it did. Yeah. I think for growing up with a social construct of the two genders, to sort of shift and understand that into a galaxy. That's a, a big transition uh, to make a lot of like learning, unlearning as well involved in that. Yeah. Have you faced like pushback or challenge either in these workshops talking about these issues or just in general, maybe personal, professional, either way, where people don't accept these definitions or don't understand it and hence reject it? Um, so many times
1: i would say that initially for people who come from a place of not understanding um right now what we did was just like a brief like two minute thing right Uh, Right. we really deep dive into it like we take them from biology to mental health to psychology to different things to get them to truly understand what gender sexuality means so if it's a question of understanding people do go away with a certain level of understanding as long as they're open to it Mm. however there Mm. are people that come in with a this isn't what the world should be like mentality that there should be no LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. And with those people, um, I find it very important to give it our best to get them to our side. Because if we keep preaching to people who already, you know, uh, agree, believe, advocate for the same causes, it's great, and you need that community. But you do need to take your work to people who don't agree, understand, or believe. Yeah, they're tougher cases. To be honest, it takes a lot more time. It takes a lot more like willingness and openness to also answer questions that they ask they might ask questions that are offensive with intent or without we tend to take it with a pinch of salt and answer all questions as though they're being asked without offense or without intent to cause offense and we keep doing that till the point they run out of questions and when we do that we find that there have been shifts we've had people come up to and come up to us like especially when we do this with parents and educators yeah. we've had them come up to us and say that you know for the longest time I just wouldn't agree to this but they've also said that nobody's ever sat us down and had this like conversation with us to explain it to us and I think that can create a lot like a lot of powerful shifts yeah. then there's always a small bunch of people that you're not going to get to and that's fine Um, you're going to make your efforts, and you're going to try and you're going to put out that we're available if you want to have conversations like after every workshop we end up Staying back for like two, three hours because people have questions. Wow. And we stay wow. to answer because unless, of course, we have a very pressing commitment, we will stay to answer because they want, like the fact that someone is seeking knowledge makes it sort of our duty to be available if we have that knowledge to share. And yeah, the last section of people you can sometimes ignore, sometimes you can't ignore. Work with them to the best of your ability. Also as a person, um, I on a personal level, I would say this that someone who who identifies as cure. Sometimes questions after a point can be triggering. Sometimes questions can come from an extremely negative space. You have to be mindful of one not letting it derail your training. So you can create a space for them to have a one-on-one conversation with you. Um, Second, I would say it's okay to step back from some conversations to preserve your mental health. But as a facilitator, I place myself as having some responsibilities, uh, which means that, I have to be conscious of the fact that I'm going in to do this training on this specific thing. So to being a little open to such questions, but also to recognizing at what point they become offensive or hurtful and possibly harmful and drawing that line. And I say this, especially as my team is quite young. And as you will notice with most people in the social sector, they also come from backgrounds where if they've not experienced it, they have friends and family who have. And these things are no longer abstract concepts that exist in the universe. They're very personal things that we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So I always ask them to prioritize their mental health and their well-being first, which means if you're someone who's working with a team, if you're someone who's leading a team, your team should know that you have their back if they decide to say, I'm not going to engage in this conversation or I will not continue with this workshop. Like those are options that every person on your team should know that they have.
0: That's really inspiring. I think to have the patience, I mean, I think it's that commitment to the vision that you stated, to put yourself in a position of discomfort potentially where, you know, either it could be irritating or annoying or even like you said, offensive, but to just give that benefit of the doubt in the moment and saying, you know, it it might not be coming from that intent and let me spend that time however long it takes to have those conversations till someone runs out of questions itself. I think that's really, really inspiring.
1: Thank you for that. But also, really, really tiring. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. Vandita, I'd love to hear about your
0: personal journey. Like, what led you to this work? I know you've studied law as well. So, what led you to starting One Future Collective as well as doing this challenging, inspiring work that you do?
1: That's very kind. Thank you. I always knew I was going to be a lawyer. I know it seems a bit like full of myself when I say it. I was, in, I was six years old and I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. And the <laughs> only reason was because my family always such had such a hard time getting a good lawyer. That I decided I'm going to be one. Um, and then I was, I, I think as I was growing up, I was always drawn to issues of justice. Um, and I couldn't deal with the idea that. Someone's good mood could mean someone's family will have food to eat that night. You know, like imagine you go out for a drive after dinner with your family and someone comes to your window, they knock on the door of your car and they say, please buy this from us, or please just give me some money and it will help me feed my child. If you're in a good mood, you probably give it. And I know people say these things around, oh, we shouldn't support beggary. We shouldn't support such vendors. But I know that what finally decides for that person to give that money is what mood they're in. And that possibly determines if that person gets food or if that person gets medicine or whatever it is that they need. And that is injustice. Um, And when you apply that to the social sector, whenever someone's ability to access food, education, shelter is dependent on the act of a philanthropist or some one person or group of organizations giving them something, That's injustice because the very fact that there is a beneficiary relationship points to injustice. And I don't think I was as cognizant of this um, till about college. I was 18 and um, I, with a bunch of people, we started something called Students for Social Reform Initiative. Very naive, very idealistic, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. We had 120 volunteers um, from our college. And we used to work in different parts of Bombay. Um, Primarily with a lot of kids in different capacities in homes, in slum areas, street children, but also with their ecosystems, which could mean their parents, it could mean larger communities. And these programs looked very different based on the community. It could just be like weekly parties with like children in a sheltered home. It was after school English and math programs, a football training program, um, community celebrations of like Independence Day. It meant a bunch of things. And I used to find that, you know, okay, this work is really going to transform the lives of these children. And it didn't come from a source of immodesty. It was just like, I feel like this could have deep impact and all of that like broke down. So one day I went to this community after a set of exams, I was going back into the community after a month, my team had been going there. And I remember talking to my class that day, I used to teach English. And I was like, do you all want to study today? And none of them wanted to study that day. And I asked them a question, but what do they want to be when they grow up? And they gave you all the answers that makes a social sector worker's heart very happy, right? Someone said doctor, someone said engineer, someone said lawyer. And then this young kid stands up, someone I was very fond of, an eight, nine-year-old kid. And he was all like, um, like you teach us all of this. But if have a no driver mechanic, it's a big deal. You know, you can come and teach us all of this, but if in our community, someone becomes even like a driver or mechanic, it's a big thing. Um, Two things. He didn't say this with any sort of self-depreciation. There was no um, shame in the fact that he would either become a driver or mechanic. Second, there was a lot of acceptance that this is what my reality is. And I think that's where my sorry if conflict within myself started because my afterschool program was supposed to change the lives of these students and that didn't happen. And I didn't know how to grapple with that because it didn't matter that I was teaching them English and math. Social barriers were so stacked up against them that this was not going to be enough. The Football training wouldn't be enough. Even getting them an internship or job could only be like a midterm solution to this. Not to say that these are not interventions that are needed. These are needed. And I say this all the time. But when I say social justice over social service, it's a very personal value. And it may not apply to everybody in every context. And we've seen that with COVID. I could keep saying social justice, but what people needed then was food. And yeah, so to be more realistic of those situations. And I went away from that like classroom. I would teach at this YMCA center behind Maratha Mandir. And I'm walking from there, I'm going to the football field because we would have these football training programs there. In fact, in association with the Oscar Foundation there. And there's this young kid that comes up to me and she's six years old. She's like got this cute little braid and she's also one of my favorites. I used to love the children there. <laughs> <laughs> I still am in touch with a lot of them, but she comes up to me and just to trigger warning of gender-based um, domestic violence that she tells me that she has a new mother. And it is a community where multiple marriages do happen. So I assume it's something of that nature. However, she tells me that her mother was pregnant. And because she faced so much domestic violence, she passed away. And she has a sibling because the father remarried, I think, within a week because he needed someone to take care of this new child. And they are situated, I think, 200 meters from one of the top government hospitals in the city. to so all of this, right? One, that grief is so normalized in someone because that is the everyday reality of their people, of their community members. They've probably seen this happen so many times. And second, just how easy gendered violence is, just how much of it exists every day and how much of it we just let go as, yes, this happens and so what? I think that was a very like large turning point for me. Um, And both of these things happened in the same day. And I remember coming back home and I think just spending a couple of days very detached with bursts of tears, with bursts of not knowing what to do and a lot of helplessness. And I still feel a lot of that helplessness. I would not say that I have a very clear-cut path which now makes me feel like I have the solution because I don't. I feel like these systemic challenges are so large that our solutions are just like chipping away at the wall and the wall is going to take a really long time to break down. But after this, what I definitely did was I realized that there are certain issues that I very strongly care about. And one of them is gender-based violence, Uh, because I find that a society where gender-based violence exists so freely and without any impunity is a society that can never be free or equal in any other term. Because if you're treating such a large percentage of your population this way, how can you ever move towards justice on other parameters? And I spent a bunch of years, um, I think till about early 2017, working with multiple organizations. So basically anyone that would have me, I would work with them. I used to volunteer, I used to work, I used to consult. And I did this with large organizations for so pan-India, international organizations, Indian organizations, across board, to just get a sense of what are organizations doing. Because I also came from the mindset that If there's an organization doing what I want to do, I do not want to replicate that. Even till date, it makes no sense to me. Even um, if one future collective decides, this sounds like an interesting thing we want to do, or an important thing we want to do, the first thing we do is we identify who's already doing it and can we support them in some way rather than starting off something new. And that's the mindset i worked with for about a couple of years. And I found that organizations were doing some beautiful work and I really, really Love the organization that I worked with. And I think a special shout out to one organization that was very instrumental to framing how I think, and that's the Red Elephant Foundation. It really taught me a lot about how you can't do anything externally till you haven't changed yourself internally. And I came from that mindset and I found that one thing that I still found missing is that people kept doing a lot more social service than social justice work. And I felt more drawn to that space. The second problem I found, um, was that young people had no decision making power. I would be made the poster child of an organization saying, Oh, she's a young leader, but I knew internally, I couldn't really lead. I would just follow. Um, and then the third thing was that social sector organizations are very toxic. They are, they expect employees to work inhuman hours. Um, the salaries are horrible. Um. You don't see the expertise of people in the social sector as expertise. Every second day, you have someone from the corporate crossing over with new skills to teach us. And I'm not going to say they don't have skills, but would you recognize my skills if I switched into your company and said, let me teach you how to do these things better? So just that um, lack of respect, even internally, I noticed this within organizations, senior management would be made up of all these corporate crossovers, whereas... ground workers have been doing field work for like 20 years now and that gap was just so much and the toxicity that often also carried over from the corporate space to this space and i'm not just going to blame that right i think work culture in general in india hierarchy um, the way that most not-for-profits are set up by people who come with a certain level of privilege power and money and then never wanting your own employees to have that sort of power and money I found all of these things a big dissonance for me. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't have money. Um, I have been self-supporting myself since I was 18. So I saved up. I saved up for a year because I knew that if I start something, I, at least for a year, need to be able to function with no salary. And then I set up One Future Collective. And I got very lucky. When I was starting, I found like a bunch of people who were equally committed to the cause, and I say this because I had no money to pay them. I had no money at all then um, to pay them, to pay us, not even to set up our website. And we came together and we started One Future Collective. Um, I remember when I registered it in 2017. That's when we started. Um, I'm a lawyer, so I started with that idea of you know let's register before we start because that seemed to make sense. Um, that was the only thing I had proper skills in, and that's why we started from. We started from ideas of social justice, and very importantly about having young people at the decision-making table, especially queer, non-binary trans women. And also to think about, can One Future Collective be a model of feminist leadership for organizations to learn from and draw from? And we keep learning even today, like it's it's not a constant case study. We hope to be an evolving case study. Uh, where organizations can learn policy, practices, behavioral, cultural um, work from us and how we operate internally. And I think that's been extremely important to us. That's where we started from. That's where I come from. Um, I have done a bunch of things outside of One Future Collective, but it's sort of a culmination of the sort of world I want to see. But I also believe that organizations are transient. And at no point in my life, I would want an organization to supersede the vision of the world that we should all have. And that's why our final mission at One Future Collective is that we should not exist. Because if we we want ourselves to keep existing, then that means we want the problem to keep continuing. That's the space I come from.
0: Wow, it's so beautiful. I think so many things that you spoke about. Just lovely, especially I think... Interesting way to look at just the social sector also um, and organizations I'd love if you could share some examples of what you all do differently at one future collective, either for enhancing youth voice like you mentioned or even some of the other things that you found toxic in other places like what are some practices that you follow at at one future collective that you think you'd love if more organizations could follow
1: um so we have a bunch of things and they're still evolving, but something that I found very um important is that we started developing a second layer of leadership from the day we started. So we have a leadership team which comprises only of young pure uh, women with an average age of I think 23, 22, 23. Um, So we wanted to put like action into what we started off as a vision. So one was that like to have your second layer of leadership in place because founders get so attached to their organization and I say this for myself too. I'm very attached to One Future Collective but I hope to be able to develop it in a way that it can function without me because if that doesn't happen and if the vision and the mission and the work doesn't continue without me then I have failed um, at making a dent in the way that I wanted to. So I, I think that's a key integral part of starting out. Um, second, I think what has been really important for us is to practice all of the policies that we teach which means if we come to you and say, oh, you must be more equitable and bring in social justice practices. We do all of that internally. And we don't just do that as a matter of checking, checking a list of legal compliances. We really push ourselves to think about what can we do better. And this keeps evolving. But what has helped us is to identify two things. One, what are our internal values in way of functioning? And second, what are the guiding principles for us? The values help anchor the work that we do and not only the work, but also the interactions and communications we expect of each other. So just the interactions and communications are also rooted in these values, which means we don't leave these values as values on paper, but they get mapped against, if you say empathy, what does empathy mean in interaction? Um, If you say respect, what does that mean in interaction? And we push the boundary on these values too, right? Like most organizations will find that values are very, professionalism, integrity, our values have that but it also has things like love and empathy and those things and that helped us see that we don't want this workplace to be this black and white divide between work and life. We want to build a space where they can truly like get rid of that divide not in a toxic way but to understand that these divides and binaries are not real and they cannot work on a day-to-day basis like how can I ask my employees to collectivize their rest and sleep on Sunday or Saturday? They might need to rest on a Wednesday. I mean, this is a really stupid, small example, but even just this really small thing, um, how do you decide that the weekend is those two days people need and to bring in those flexibility. So the values have helped us anchor what our practices will look like, especially in terms of internal working. A key part of that has been empathy, respect, and just flexibility. And we've been flexible before COVID. Second has been the guiding principles, which is about how we do the work we do. And some of those practices are radical kindness, which means all of our work has to gear us towards undoing structures of oppression, which could be at a very individual level, like you and me having this conversation and someone listening in and recognizing that some of their behavior is a result of colonialism, for example, and undoing that. Creates a micro effect somewhere in the world and that builds up from that. So, one of that is uh, one of which is that. Second is, say, for example, we say we work with communities and not for them, which on one hand is that communities we serve should never be made to feel like they're in a position of power that's below us. And for that, we bring in actual practices. Like, we'll probably charge the community a nominal fee of 10 rupees, but then we are then like, they are our clients. And they have that power over us. Second, on the other hand, when we work with people who have more power than us, say clients, donors, funders, we still continue with these practices because that's how you change the ecosystem. We say we work with you. We do not work for you. And we will only negotiate and work with you on equitable terms or we will not. And we have lost money. We have lost funding and that's okay because we do not work with people that expect us to work for them. Because at OFC, no one works for anyone. We all work with each other. Another principle for us is doing everything we love, everything we do with great love. And this is something that we find very powerful for activist spaces, that you can't be expected to keep your emotional self at home and just bring your rational self to work, because that's not possible. You're doing this work because you feel something in most cases. And you go into the field and to then expect my team to not feel something. It's just... In It's impossible, like even my social media manager, right? If there's someone managing my social media, and they are bombarded with negative news from across the world every day, to be cognizant of that, that they will feel because they do things with love, they do things with care. So these values and principles just help us ground our work. And I find that when organizations can truly be honest and put down what their values and principles are on paper and link that to their policies, to their processes, to why they do some things and why they don't do some things, it can create a very honest culture internally. Um, even like when organizations want to do work outside of their space, like outside of the organization, they will often not do that work inside. If I want to dismantle structures of oppression outside, I'll give you an example, one of which is just hoarding off money and we want to dismantle that. As a young organization, which is so scared of not having money every second day, um, as I think most NGOs in the country are, we tend to have a surplus, we tend to keep a reserve of about a year of funds to keep the organization running. We had a little bit more extra when COVID happened. And we were so scared because COVID means all of our community work stopped and all of our revenue generating work stopped as well. And then we decided that why are we behaving exactly in the way that we're trying to dismantle and we redistributed that money within the team. We've given two bonuses during the COVID period because we know that the needs of our people should be a priority over long term sustenance of an organization. An organization is paper, it's an agreement, but the people on the team are actual people who have living needs right now. So, yeah, these are like, this is a small incident, but we've really been trying to internalize external practices. And I think if organizations can end up doing that, I think they can create extremely powerful shifts internally
0: wow thank you for sharing all of that i think two things that just really like have are gonna stay with me i think for a while one is where you spoke about you know i've heard the phrase a lot like we work with the community and not for. But sometimes it's harder to imagine what do you really mean, what do you really do. And I think such a simple example of saying, you know, even if it's like a really just a token fee, but that shifts the power dynamics because now we're service providers to them and they're the customers and not like the a beneficiary who we're doing something for. So I really loved how concrete and how simple that was. Um, and also just very inspiring on the work that you shared in COVID, right? I, I mean, we hear of so many private organizations who are still generating revenue and getting like private equity funds from VCs, etc. But at the same time have done like 30% cut, 40% cut, let go of staff. Um, and to have like a smaller organization, a non-profit do what you've done. I think it, it's really inspiring to, to just have that courage to live your principles in times that are really difficult. I think it's very easy to do not very easy to do. It's relatively easier to do in times that are easier but I think it's so challenging to live up to the same set of values in testing times.
1: Well thank you for that. Um, I think it doesn't just come from me. It comes from a very strong leadership team and a larger team at OFC where there's just a general belief that Our work here in this world, and I mean that of each person and us as a collective, is to truly shift something and change something. It's not the longevity of one future collective. It's not how long one future collective can exist. And I think having that as a core part of our ideology really helps prioritize. Like whenever we have conflicting interests, it helps us prioritize very easily because it's always people over an entity. And when you can truly do that, it shifts how you see the entity because it's no longer about power capturing and continuing to hold power over decades. It's about what can you do now that will shift something tomorrow, next year, like in 10 years.
0: Lovely, that's beautiful. Vandita, as we like sort of start winding this conversation, any like learnings uh, that you've had, that you've realized over time that you'd love to share with people? This could be, more professional or it could be personal like but anything that you'd love to share as advice for people listening who'd like to go on a similar journey that you've gone
1: i always wary of giving advice but i can tell you um some things that i made a mistake on and perhaps you know others can learn from that if that's something that resonates i think um i found it very easy initially so like in the beginning i found it easy to say people over profits and people over organization But to practice it took some time. And it also takes some conflict and an immense amount of courage because it can be difficult. But always, always put your people over profit. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters more than the people that have helped you build what you're building. Second, I would say, is internalize your values. Um, Sometime, somewhere, someone's going to catch on to the fact that what you're preaching is not what you do. That shouldn't be the only reason you internalize values. (laughs) But you definitely need to uh, because till you do that, your work's impact will never be as great as you want it to be because you've not truly understood what the impact of it could be. Um, Third, I think, and something I still struggle with because I am a slightly stubborn person, is that if you're presented with better information or a better process or a better way of doing things, change things. There's no reason things have to be changed in your annual strategy meeting change it every month if needed, especially like COVID has taught us this, right? Like adaptability and flexibility is a great thing. It's nothing to be ashamed of to say that we changed our practices because we learned better every month. So to be a little bit open to that. And I think the last two things are just that um, when you're in this sector, you're going to find that you'll have an immense amount of maybe friends and families. And I'm lucky to have friends and family outside of this sector who truly support me, but they will not understand what you do. One as someone in this sector, but also as someone, if you're a social entrepreneur just starting out, so you have to develop and nurture a community of mentors, advisors, friends within this space who can sort of be there for you. Um, who you can be there for. And the last part is always just don't forget to have fun while you're doing your work. Um, we, um, okay, this is really like sad example, but someone on our WhatsApp group within the team asked, what do you associate yourself most with? Like, how would you identify yourself? And I said, with my work. And that was a really turning point for me to realize that that's very sad. People took some time and people had multiple things to share. I gave a one word response and we have to, you, I mean, anyone listening in and even for me, honestly, you have to find things beyond your work that hold meaning and value for you otherwise getting burnt out and losing joy in the process of what you're doing is very easy. And it happened to me. It happened to me earlier this year. I felt very burnt out. Um, my break is also not really a break because I do have to keep working. But being able to find interest outside of work helps me go back to work with more energy and more focus. And it also helps me distance myself sometimes emotionally because that is required and allows me to have a bit of fun. There's this quote I love. And perhaps um, I can close on that is what's the point of a revolution if you can't dance? And that's the sort of spirit we bring into One Future Collective. And that's the spirit I have it like for my own life.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. I think this conversation has just been so inspiring. The work that you're doing as well as just like what you believe personally, not just I think One Future Collective definitely is doing some incredible work. Just hearing you react to different situations you've had, choices you've made, I think it's just been really inspiring and and thank you so much for taking out the time and sharing all of this with me.
1: Not at all. Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, I love that you started this and it's such a beautiful space and you hold space so beautifully. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was really lovely speaking to you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you have feedback, suggestions, reactions or guest nominations, do write to us. You can DM us on Instagram. Our handle is at a new kind of celebrity or email us at a new kind of celebrity at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Look forward to meeting you next week. Till then, good luck and take care.